60 years ago this week, the American Unitarian Association and the Universalist Church of America merged to become the Unitarian Universalist Association. As part of the run-up to the merge, a combined service was held at Boston Symphony Hall. And for that service, they brought two pulpits in, one that had been used by that pillar of universalism, Hosea Ballou, and another formerly used by the giant of Unitarianism, William Ellery Channing. Two pulpits. We come together today in those spirits of generosity, of hospitality, and of spiritual curiosity. Those formed us into a faith that can truly say, we need not think alike to love alike. Come into this place where we draw the circle wider. I'm Reverend Bob LaValle, and I'm delighted to be here with our worship leader, John Eldridge. And I wanna say thanks to Reverend Emily Wright Magoon, who is sharing today's Time for All Ages. Our music director, Susan Peck, is taking a well-deserved day off. Our DJ today is Cy Schuster, and our tech team is Dan Small, Christine Robinson, Bill Miller, Erica Johnson Jimenez, and Chris Paul. Thank you all so much for helping us make the donuts. And I'm so happy to introduce our guest preacher today. Dr. Mike Hogue was one of my favorite theology professors in seminary at Meadville Lombard Theological School. And I loved him because of the way that he made ancient and huge ideas feel current and urgent and personal. His sermon is pre-recorded but we're so glad to welcome him here to the pulpit at First Unitarian Church of Albuquerque. John has an announcement for us. Good morning. Great to be with you again. Here's our one announcement for this beautiful Sunday Mother's Day. There is a special congregational meeting planned for next Sunday, May 16th at 2 o'clock p.m. We'll vote on buying out our solar panel lease, purchasing the ARC building that abuts the north side of our campus, and agreeing to ordain our beloved former ministerial intern, Jane Davis. The login is the same as these worship services. We hope that you can join us for these important decisions in the life of our congregation. We are all capable in different ways with various strengths and talents, we are all a holy part of the universe and the interdependent web. We light this chalice, cherishing our differences and holding each other in sacredness. Come, let us worship together.
Miss Ann, would you light the chalice as we say our principles? Each person is important. Kind and fair in all you do. We're free to learn together. We search for what is true. All people need a voice. Build a fair and peaceful world. We take care of our planet. We work together for diversity and against racism and oppression. Thank you, everybody. Hi, I'm Reverend Emily Wright Magoon, a UU community minister here in Albuquerque, and I'm delighted that Reverend Bob and Reverend Angela have invited me to tell you a story today. This story is inspired by the ancient epic poem, The Conference of the Birds, by the Persian Sufi Muslim writer, Farid al-Din Attar. Once upon a time, all the birds in the land decided they needed a leader. A leader, they thought, would solve all their problems. The hoopoe bird said, it's true, Look at the troubles happening in our world. Discontent, upheaval, desperate fights over territory, water and food, poisoned air, unhappiness. I fear we are lost. We must do something. I know of a king who has all the answers. The Samurg. We must go and find the Samurg. He lives very far from here, a journey through seven valleys. The birds were excited. They said they were willing to go anywhere to find such a leader. It might be dangerous, said the hoopoe. A few birds looked troubled, but all the birds voted to go find this magical bird. The hoopoe took off and all the birds followed. They flew at night, they flew during the day, and days and days passed. Some birds got tired and left the group. Other birds were filled with doubt. How did they know this magical bird really existed? Only the hoopoe bird had ever heard of the Samurg. One valley was filled with fiery mountains and the birds were afraid. I'm too small to make it over that mountain, cried the sparrow. No, keep flying. We can make it together. We will help you. And they did. The strong flyers helped the weaker flyers. The birds with good vision helped find food for the group. Along the journey, the birds learned how to better respect, share, and care for each other. It seemed that each bird had something special and unique to offer that made the journey easier. Then finally, the hoopoe bird announced, we are here. The other birds looked around in anticipation. Where is this magical bird, the Samurg? We don't see it, they cried. Come, it is over here, said the hoopoe. The birds stood beside the hoopoe and realized they were on the edge of a lake. 
They looked into the lake, and what they saw, my friends, was their own reflections. The reflections of 30 birds. Then they understood. After all, the word Samurg means si, 30, merg, birds. 30 birds. Then, as if the reflections in the lake were actually a real bird, they heard the words, And all who come before my splendor see themselves, their own unique reality. Though you have struggled, wandered, traveled far, it is yourselves you see and what you are. Then, the birds knew that together they could do anything. Let's pause the chat for a few moments as we move into a time of meditation and prayer. We'll turn them back on, of course, for the joys and concerns. On this Mother's Day, we meditate using the words of Reverend Leslie Mills. Beloved companions, breathe deep the breath of life. Let down all the cares of the world from your shoulders, if only for this moment. As we join together in the spirit of meditation, centering, and prayer. Today is a day, like any other day, where we, set, we sit in the messy middle of our lives, trying to make sense of it all and bring meaning to our complex histories. Today is a day like any other day, and yet it is also Mother's Day, the one day of the year where we lift up motherhood in all its multi-layered pain and glory. For some, it may be a pleasantly simple holiday, and for many, we recognize that it is anything but simple. And so this morning, let us be guided by the love that is the spirit of this church as we acknowledge the wide continuum of mothering. I invite us to close our eyes if we're comfortable, to breathe gently and expand our awareness beyond ourselves, reaching out with our hearts to embrace all in this Zoom room and beyond who have experience, who have a relationship with motherhood until everyone is held in the warmth of our compassion. And as we reach out to others, also notice that everyone here is reaching out and holding us so tenderly. You are held if you have a mother and if you don't. If your relationship to your mother is whole or broken, if you wear your motherhood openly or if it is hidden, and if you know who gave you birth, or if you don't. You are held, whether the thought of mothering brings you hope or despair, 
joy or grief, energy or exhaustion, longing or resistance. You are held if you have given birth, if you have yet to give birth, if you will never give birth, and if you grieve the lost dream of birth. You are held if you love a mother, if you struggle with a mother, if you are estranged from a mother, if you are betrayed by a mother, and if you have lost a mother. You are held if you mother to many or few or none, whether you embrace a feminine model of mothering or whether you model you mother outside of, of gender binaries. You are held if you are single and longing for a child of your own, or if you are single and walking the road of motherhood already. You are held if you mother your own children or those who were birthed by another through adoption, fostering, step-parenting, or if you mother to nieces and nephews or grandchildren, whether they are still small or growing up, moving on, moving out, moving away. You are held if you gave your child up for adoption and if you've experienced the loss of a child through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or running away. You are held if you walk the hard path of infertility or if abortion is part of your history. You are held if your child died after you held them in your arms, taken from you far too soon, whether they were young or old enough to have children of their own. Your motherhood did not end that day. All who have a relationship to motherhood are held, which is to say all are held with tenderness, compassion, and love. We will hold this spirit of silence together for two minutes. And if you wish, you are invited now to light a candle for Mother's Day.
Joys and concerns are braided energies in each life. When shared out of vulnerable trust, these weave our covenant journey to a stronger, sensitive community. As we listen deeply to attune to each one's journey, please use the chat bar to share first your joys and then your concerns as prompted. If you're unable to post in the chat bar, please call the church office or email caring at uabq.org. Leave word of how we may support you in these times. We now share from our daily lives.
all these joys and concerns that we have shared with each other, as well as those joys and concerns held in our hearts that are unspoken, but no less deeply felt. All of these we lift up to the great powers of celebration and healing and renewal known by many names. Let's join our hearts in prayer. We pray for Melissa and Rick and Gina Kennedy as they recover from a fire in their house. May they know the support of this congregation and may they find stability soon. We mourn with Alyssa Cooper de Urube and her family as they grieve the passing of her mother. And we mourn with Donna Collins and her family as they grieve the passing of Don McTaggart. May they all know the comfort of this congregation as we hold them in our hearts. And may light perpetual shine upon Elisa's mother and upon Don. We lift up the protesters across the world who are putting their bodies in the way of oppression and justice and injustice from Colombia to Palestine to pipeline three. May they bring a new world into being. And may we pray, we pray for the qualities to navigate this liminal time in the world and in our church and in our own lives. May we find patience and wisdom as we create a new way of being that sees our highest hopes realized. And as we prepare for the return of Reverend Angela from her sabbatical on June 1st, May we remember the value of rest and renewal in our own lives. And may we all be held in the heart of love. Peace be with you. Viva los estudiantes, que no se asusta de animal ni policía y no le asustan las balas ni ladrar de la jauría caramba y zampa la cosa y va la autonomía ay la ay la caramba y zampa la cosa que viva la autonomía Los estudiantes, pobres de Ayotzinapa, su ausencia encendió una llama que recorre todo el mapa. Esto es crimen del Estado, para nadie es misterio. Caramba y zampa la cosa, que viva el magisterio. Ay, la rara, ay, Caramba, 
sotanas o regimientos, pajarillos libertarios igual que los elementos, caramba y zapa la cosa, vivan los experimentos, ay la la la. two readings chosen by our guest preacher today. The first is by Judith Butler from her book, Precarious Life, The Powers of Mourning and Violence. Many people think that grief is privatizing, but maybe when we undergo what we do, something about who we are is revealed, something that delineates the ties we have to others, that shows us that these ties constitute what we, what we are. Let's face it, we are unknown by each other. And if we're not, we're missing something. The second reading is by James and Grace Lee Boggs from Revolution and Evolution. A revolution requires that people go beyond struggling against oppressive institutions. It entails making an evolutionary leap toward becoming more socially responsible and more self-critical human beings. In order to transform the world, we must transform ourselves. Hello, friends. It's good to be with you this morning, even if it's virtual and a recorded presence. 
uh, was a pleasure to receive an email from uh, Meadville's former student, Bob Lavalli, and be invited to give this, um, give this sermon and share some reflections with you uh, this morning. So one of the, um, you know, I'm sure we're all Zoom fatigued, I certainly am, but one of the nice benefits of the Zoom technology is the ability to be able to be present in different communities around the country and even around the world. I was recently doing a panel with a group of scholars in Qatar, which never would have happened if it hadn't been for, unfortunately, if it hadn't been for COVID-19. So um, what I want to do this morning is share with you some, some reflections on the state of our democracy and what uh, Unitarian Universalism has to do with it and roles that each one of us as Unitarian Universalists can play in the what I would consider the, um, the culturing of a resilient democracy. Now, much of these reflections are provoked by the last four years of, uh, of Donald Trump's presidency. And so I will be using the Trump uh, presidency as a kind of case example of what I think is a larger uh, global phenomenon and problem. And that's the rise of populist authoritarianism in a world of complex problems. So uh, although we're fortunate that Trump is no longer in office, um, uh, Trump and Trumpism are not going away. And so I have some thoughts about, about how we can be engaged as Unitarian Universalists in uh, the building up of a more resilient democracy. I'd like to start with a brief reflection on um, an experience I had in the summer of 2016. I was with a group of other scholars in Berlin on a tour of the Reichstag, the German parliament. Our guide was a Green Party delegate, and he showed us through all the old and the new parts of the building and made a point of interpreting some of the art installations, of which there were many. One of the installations was sculpted out of hundreds of tin mailboxes that had been used through the years by German parliamentarians ever since the founding in 1871. They were stacked in two rows from floor to ceiling and extended in length about 10 meters and they were sculpted into, into an artificial hallway. So you actually had to enter the sculpture to experience it. The names of the parliamentarians were etched into the mailboxes. And although people had tried to scratch his name out, Adolf Hitler's name was also on one of the boxes. And I'll never forget what our guide said when we noticed a gap in the years that were represented in that installation, the gap between 1933 and 1949. Those were the years of the Third Reich. Our guide said that as a German observing the American political scene, and again, this is 2016, and especially the rise of racial resentment, xenophobia, and hate that was fueled at the time by or coalesced around and within the presidential candidacy of Donald Trump. His great fear was that Americans might not know, as Germans have had to painfully and violently learn, that democracy can be lost a little at a time until it's gone. So the future of democracy here in the US and really around the world is more uncertain now than it has been in a long time. Although figures like 
uh, Duterte in the Philippines, Erdogan in Turkey, uh, Orban in Hungary, Modi in India, Bolsonaro in Brazil, and of course Trump here in the United States are easy targets of critique. These authoritarian populists are not the drivers of democratic uncertainty. They are rather symptoms and accelerants of it. The risk to democracy today here in the US and really around the world are not violent and sudden overthrows from the outside, but incremental cumulative erosions of democratic norms and conventions from the inside, a little at a time until it's gone. But the breakdown of political institutions and norms does not occur in an historical vacuum. And we citizens are not innocent with respect to the dysfunctions of democracy. In other words, the corrosion and the erosion and the deconstruction and deconsolidation of democracy isn't something that's happening to us. We're very much a part of it. Too many of us, for example, have assumed the invulnerability of American democracy forgetting that although it may be one of history's longest running democratic experiments, it nonetheless remains an experiment. Some of us have succumbed to resignation. Others of us have been seduced to sacrifice the good for the illusion of the perfect. And many of us, as a result of the hacking and monetizing of our cognitive biases by cable news, corporate social media, domestic political campaigns, and foreign governments have become come informationally isolated and ideologically turned in on ourselves. Thus, none of us are innocent bystanders to the dysfunctions of American democracy. And in a way, this is good news. Uh, if we're not innocent with respect to the disrepair of democracy, nor are we powerless with respect to its repair. After all, democracy is ultimately of, by, and for the people. And we must remember this, especially when it most seems that it isn't. So what's going on and what can we do about it? As unexpected as the outcome of the 2016 election was for some of us, it really shouldn't have been that much of a surprise. The conditions were ripe for Trump or someone like him. Why? Because this present trial of American democracy is driven by an especially complex set of problems, racial, cultural, and informational polarization, climate chaos, and new waves of immigration, widening economic inequality and rising economic insecurity, mutually reinforcing concentrations of corporate and political power, the urban-rural apartheid, many dimensions to this. These are complex problems. And the thing about complex problems is not only that they're hard to solve, but they provoke a quest for simplistic solutions. And of course, simplistic solutions have popular appeal. Political opportunists like Trump, uh, like other authoritarian populists, know how to manipulate, often through scapegoating and division, the fear of complexity and the appeal of simplicity. What is more, the uncertainties and anxieties and fears provoked by complex problems trigger an authoritarian impulse that is latent within a significant percentage of the American population. And finally, authoritarian populist leaders seem instinctually to know how to mobilize that impulse by connecting it to the right mythology. 
Trump's MAGA or Make America Great Again slogan taps directly into one of the deepest, most cherished, and I would argue one of the most dangerous of American myths, the myth of American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism is a distinctive alloy of Christian eschatology or historical sensibility, of white nationalism, of political missiology, capitalist triumphalism, and imperial hubris. It's all of these things. It is fundamentally a white Christian nationalist mythology, the theopolitical form, we might say, of white supremacy. So, of course, in identifying American exceptionalism with white Christian ethno-nationalism, it's important to remember that not all Christians are white, not all Christians are nationalists, and not all nationalists are white nationalists. Nonetheless, American exceptionalism is an ethno-nationalist fusion of religious ideas, cultural chauvinism, and racial animus that runs all through U.S. history, and yet we could be living through its apotheosis. Now, in suggesting this, I have in mind two meanings of apotheosis. First, I mean that Trump represents, um, in his own mind, as well as among many of his followers, a deification of American exceptionalism. And this is apotheosis as in made into a god. And second, I mean that the dysfunctions of democracy that we are living through, of which Trump is symptom rather than cause, could become American exceptionalism's denouement. And this is apotheosis in a second meaning as in climactic transition and ending. In other words, the disruptions to, America, to democratic conventions and norms and the breakdown of existing forms of American democracy are illuminating the anti-democratic and ethno-nationalist core of American exceptionalism. And this could seed the possible renewal of a more empathic, emancipatory, and equitable culture of democracy. But this depends on us, we the people. So this is where we are. This moment in American history, this trial of American democracy of which Trump and Trumpism are the avatars has a theological structure. The myth of American exceptionalism is founded in and animated by a Trinitarian theology of race, nation, and market. Thus, if we seek to imagine a counter myth to American exceptionalism, if we seek to realize a more resilient democracy on the other side of a democratic breakdown, then it's imperative that we enact in our lives and communities a transformative counter theology. And such a theology must be radical enough to turn things around by starting exactly with who and where we are, beginning with a distinction that Gracely Boggs makes, for instance, between rebellion and revolution. Rebellion through a decisive interruption of the status quo foments a crisis and creates the opportunity for systemic change. But rebellion is not revolution. Rebellion is a potent event in time, whereas revolution is the extended process of transforming time. Revolution is a way of giving life to a new world of new practices and institutions by evolving a new life for ourselves. Thus, while rebellion is about resistance, the work of revolution entails resilience. 
Resistance and rebellion are necessary elements of social change, but they are also insufficient to social transformation. The complexity of social transformation requires a revolution of ourselves as well as our systems and institutions. To put this another way, revolution must be spiritually intensive as well as socially extensive. And it entails moving beyond the denunciation of what is wrong to the enunciation of what should and could be. So what does this mean for us, for you and for me? What does a spiritually intensive, socially transformative, resilient democracy look like? What sort of revolutionary counter theology is necessary to frame and sustain it? And what contributions can we, through our communities, associations, fellowships, and congregations, make to it? Well, first of all, we must remember, as Michelle Alexander reminded us in an op-ed a couple of years ago, that those of us who struggle to build a more resilient, multiracial, equitable democracy are actors in a long, continuous yearning and reaching for freedom that flows through history like a river. That was a quote from Michelle Alexander. So we are not the resistance, she went on to say, although there is much for us to resist. We are the latest surge in the revolutionary river of the democratic experiment. To contribute more wisely to this revolution that has long been underway, to navigate this flowing river of freedom, we must begin with ourselves, with who and where we are. For we Unitarian Universalists are not immune to an anti-democratic smallness of heart and mind. And as a prominently white denomination, we're especially prone to white fragility and ignorant of the myriad of ways that unconscious white privilege works to reproduce explicit white supremacy. So part of our work then is to learn how to relate more consciously and critically across our cultural, ethno-racial, sexual, and even our political differences. And this means that we must strive to integrate cultural self-awareness with the spirit and practice of intellectual, moral, and social generosity. Well then, what does that entail? What does the spirit of generosity entail? It entails, I would say, at least humility toward our own convictions, for we could be and often are wrong. It entails curiosity about others' cultures, experiences, and points of view. For we live in a world of kaleidoscopic complexity and beauty. It entails a willingness to learn from others for they can be our teachers and we need one another. It entails a readiness to revise our own perspectives in response to ongoing experience and dialogue for this is the essence of a free and a responsible search for truth and meaning. And it entails commitment to a common life larger than our own individual self-interest. For we are neither the center of the universe nor the revolution nor perhaps even our own lives. To cultivate a more resilient culture of democracy, we must learn not only how to work across differences internal to our communities, of which there are many that are very real, but we must also learn how to build coalitions and solidarities around purposes we share with others. And note, the point is not that we should only build coalitions and solidarities with those whose beliefs, values, and identities are ones that we approve or that have passed whatever our political and theological purity tests might be. 
The point is that we must build coalitions and solidarities around shared purposes despite our other differences. And doing this entails getting over ourselves, getting over our self-righteousness, getting over our will to purity and perfection. So another part of our work is to cultivate the spirit and practice of collaboration. This requires that we recognize the partial, both biased and incomplete nature of our own positions and views, even our own liberal, progressive, multicultural views, and that we open ourselves to the potential wisdom of others, even those with whom we disagree. So there's much work for us to do. Fortunately, as Unitarian Universalists, our shared principles imply a set of shared theological convictions that can orient and sustain us, though this shared theology is too seldom recognized. The shared theology includes the conviction that the liberation of the oppressed from their bondage and of oppressors from their ignorance and arrogance depends on disruptive truth-telling and prophetic agitation. This shared theology includes the conviction that the cosmic web of interdependence is the sacred incubator of all that is creative and good. This shared theology includes the conviction that the presence of the holy in the worth and dignity of each of us is what connects all of us to one another as well as to a good beyond ourselves. This shared theology includes the conviction that justice is the public amplification of love, as Cornel West has put it, and before him, the Anglican socialist William Temple, and before him, the brown-skinned Palestinian Jew, Jesus. And perhaps most of all, this shared theology includes the conviction that participating in the continuous river of freedom is not only a civic duty for us, but the meaning, the manifesting of a spiritual vocation in the world. Now, since we are a tradition that prizes orthopraxy over orthodoxy, these theological convictions must be concretely activated as well as intellectually avowed. These convictions, in other words, must be transformed from propositions into practices. A more resilient democracy needs agitators and disruptors to unsettle the status quo business as usual. It needs incubators and innovators to prefigure alternative communities, economies, and modes of governance. It needs connectors who can help diverse grassroots, grassroots initiatives and movements to discover their common purposes rather than to compete for activist market share or cultural recognition. And it needs amplifiers to, practice, to build the social resonance required to sustain revolution. Now, some of us are called to disrupt and to agitate. Others are called to, to connect. Some of us are blessed to incubate and innovate and others to amplify. We're not all necessarily gifted for each of these practices and no one of them is the right or ideal form of revolutionary activism. But in combination, these activist counter theological practices of agitation, innovation, connection, and amplification are necessary to the repair of a more resilient culture of democracy. Let me close by returning to where we began and referring back to some of our uh, readings earlier in the service. 
our tour guide's comments during my visit to the Reichstag reinforced the idea that democracy is always a vulnerable politics, a wounding, wounded, and woundable mode of collective struggle and emancipation. Now, to say this is to agree with the reading from Judith Butler that, contrary to common understandings, grief is a public and a political emotion that maybe, as she puts it, when we undergo what we do, something about who we are is revealed, something that delineates the ties we have to others, that shows us that these ties constitute what we are. This is why democracy is vulnerable. There's much that we do not and cannot know on our own. We are frequently in error about what we think we know, and we are selfishly motivated more often than we would like to admit. And this is why our vulnerability must be democratic together in community and solidarity. We have a better shot at learning what we need to know to get closer to the truth of things and to more closely approximate justice. It's precisely because of the creative tension between these two truths that Unitarian Universalists and other religious progressives have a particularly important role to play in the cultivating of a more resilient culture of democracy. For we have faith that the struggle to widen the circles of empathy and equity and to extend the scope of liberation are not only ingredients of a more resilient democracy, but are elements of our sacred struggle. Beloved community and the kingdom of God are not utopian ideals reserved for the end of time. They are here now among us, potencies in our midst, if we have the eyes to see them, the hearts to feel them, and the courage to realize them. Thank you very much. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said in 1967, we are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is such a thing as being too late. There is such a thing as being too late. This is a time for vigorous and positive action. Through the months of March, April, and May, our Change for the Future recipient is the American Civil Liberties Union of New Mexico. The ACL of New Mexico protects and advances justice, liberty, and equity as guaranteed by the constitutions of New Mexico and the United States. It is especially focused on groups that have been historically disenfranchised. You can make an offering online by clicking on the link that we'll put in the chat box. And if you prefer not to give online, you can simply mail a check to the church and include change for the future on the memo line. Oh, baby. 
What is generously given is received with gratitude. Thank you on behalf of the American Civil Liberties Union of New Mexico and on behalf of First Unitarian Church of Albuquerque. And I want to say thank you again to Dr. Mark Hogue, Dr. Mike Hogue for a barn burner of a sermon. Holy cow. It takes me right back to class. Anyways, we're approaching the end of the service. And uh, if you want to stay in chat, we totally invite you to do that. We love that. Just linger on the Zoom call until the end of the service and we'll place you in a breakout room. And here's a question for the discussion rooms. If you feel like doing that, I'm gonna put it in the chat right now. Where do you feel humility and curiosity when you think about revolution? Let me say that again. Where do you feel... Did I just drop out of the Zoom call? No? Okay. I got some really interesting stuff going on over here. <laughs> uh, never a dull moment, right? Where do you feel humility and curiosity when you think about revolution? And speaking of democracy, I want to remind folks that there is a special election for U.S. House of Representatives on June 1st, and that early voting has begun. Get out and vote. Let's extinguish our chalices. We extinguish our chalices, cherishing our differences and holding each other in sacredness. Go in peace, gentle people, and practice radical love. <laughs>